Good morning, everybody. Um, I forgot to put on my, my goatee this morning, so if I look a little different, I, uh, I'll put it on next week. Actually, you'll probably lose the mustache next week, so if you get a stranger in the pulpit next week, it might be me. Look a little closer. Um, Want to invite our children to Children's Church. Uh, teacher will meet you in the back. And as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us your word. And Lord, um, as we heard even in the reading this morning, this, this ministry of the word is so central to the church. And uh, Lord, we, we praise you that you are faithful in the ministry of the word, that you continue to bring to us what it is your word means, what it means for us today, what it means for us in this situation. And Lord, we count on you doing that again this morning. Would you be with us in the study of your word, with the preaching, the hearing, the reading? Um, Lord, would you be with us in believing your word as well? And uh, so we ask that you would also be with our, um, our friend, Church Revive AV, as Pastor Jeff this morning is going to share his testimony with the church. And um, I know his, uh, his call to faith was fairly dramatic, and I thank you for giving that to him and, and him using it to encourage the saints. So be with them this morning as well, and I pray that they would be growing in their knowledge and their love and their obedience to you. And so as we turn to your word, Lord, would you accomplish those things in our hearts and minds as well? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, last week I'd said, you know, chapter 5 was kind of end of an era. Um, it ends with the apostles being beaten and told to speak no more. So what happens at that is kind of this pivot. There's this, this change of direction. And the church now is going to exist largely not under pressure, from the, uh, the authorities to not talk about Jesus, but now it's going to be persecution against the church. But um, it's, it's kind of an exciting time as you look through it because this persecution also leads to many other great things. So now we're starting on chapter 6, and before we launch out with where the church goes next, because what's going to happen next is we're going to look at Stephen, the first martyr. So like I said, the, the persecution is going to ramp up. But also the persecution in, the, in Jerusalem is going to push the disciples out of Jerusalem. They're going to head out into Judea, Samaria, um, other areas. Um, so that's what persecution does is it pushes them in that direction. And then in a few chapters, we'll be introduced to Saul of Tarsus, this man who will eventually come to Christ and evangelize the known world at that point. So we're just kind of at this, this crux where the church is about to head off in many different directions. And it's... It's noteworthy that what Luke does is he brings us back to the church gathered one more time. Um, this, is, this little story that we're looking at today, this is the first time we've seen the whole church gathered together since the day of Pentecost, when there were 120 in an upper room. This is the first time that Luke is going to use the word disciples to describe the church. Up until this point, he said the number or the... the, uh, the um, Brothers, he would refer to him as brothers. This is the first time we see the whole church gathered. Even with Ananias and Sapphira, it was Peter, Ananias and Sapphira, and some people to haul away dead bodies. And that was it. So this is now, we're, we're clicking in, we're, we're zooming in on what the church does together. And so my premise for, for the book of Acts is it's disciples making disciples. And one of the questions I've asked repeatedly is what we're reading, is it descriptive or prescriptive? And so we're going to ask that same question again this morning. Is this just describing what they did, or is this prescribing something for us? And so let's, let's take a look at this. So this is how we begin. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, 
when weren't they increasing in numbers so far? Hasn't it been like that the whole time? Pentecost, 3,000. Peter goes to the temple and people come in thousands again. Um, so what Luke, Luke is kind of cluing us in here is this isn't like sequential, this happened. It's, he's telling the story. This is going on during this time period. So the disciples are increasing in number. Even in the face of persecution, the disciples increase in number. But what happens when you get a bunch of disciples together? That, that's what this section answers. What happens when you get a bunch of disciples together? This is what happens. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their wives were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what do disciples do when they gather? There is a daily distribution of food to the widows. That's what disciples do. They daily, not once a week, not whenever they have a little bit extra, daily they are distributing. They're not waiting for the widows to come to them. They are distributing to the widows food, the daily distribution of food. That's what the disciples do. So one of the things disciples do when they get together is they care for the most needy amongst them. That was what was going on here. Now, something that's that's kind of doesn't, Luke doesn't say, but it kind of really begs the question here. I just misused that. It, it kind of raises the question here is, um, in Israel, in, in the law, there was a required donation given to the temple so that the temple could provide for the widows. So widows would come to the temple and be provided for. But these disciples, these widows who are disciples, apparently feel that they can't go back to the temple. And, and what's really frustrating about this section is Luke gives us hardly any details in this. It's really sketchy. So we kind of have to theorize here. Were the widows afraid to go to the temple because of what would have happened to the disciples? The apostles got beaten and arrested. Um, were they forbidden to come because they were identified as Christians? Don't know. But for some reason, what was available to other Jews, Jewish widows, was not available to them. And so the church stepped up. The church stepped in to fill that gap. The governmental, the, the, you know, the institutional welfare that was provided for the widows was denied to these specific widows, and so the church stepped in and daily gave to them, daily distributed to them. So that's one of the things the disciples do. This is what we do when we gather together is we watch out for each other. We provide for each other. We care for each other. And, and we'll come to the reason why in a little while. What's the other thing that the disciples do here? Complain. The, the word is actually, the, the King James is about the only translation I could find that translates it grumbled. And, and it's a, uh, you know what onomatopoeia means? It, it's a word that sounds like what it is. And so uh, grumbled sounds like grumbling. And, and the same thing in Greek is it's, it sounds like a grumbling word. But that's what's going on is there was a grumbling amongst the Hellenists. And uh, if, if you've got an ESV, your footnote says the Greek speaking. And that's probably the best way to understand that is there were uh, these, these Jewish widows who had become Christians who spoke Greek primarily, and then there were other ones who spoke Aramaic. They were called the Hebrews. Aramaic was the, the kind of, um, it wasn't Hebrew, but it's very close to Hebrew, and it was kind of what they spoke at the time. So what you've got is these widows would come for the food, for the distribution. Some of them spoke Greek, some of them spoke Hebrew, and the grumbling shows up because, hey, the, he, the Greek-speaking ones are being neglected. There's something going on. Why was that? How was that? We don't know. Luke didn't tell us. Maybe they put the bulletin up on the bulletin board in Aramaic, and the Greeks couldn't read what time it was or something. I don't know. But there was a division. There was a problem there. And so that's, that's what's going on in the church early on, is the disciples are gathering, they're providing, 
but they're not doing it perfectly. An issue has arisen. So why is it that the, the, Hebrew, or the, uh, the Hebrew speaking widows are being taken care of, but the Greek speaking aren't? What's going on there? Is that, you know, is that racism or something? I think what the problem is, is, is um, human beings are at their root tribal. Right? You can talk about factions or cliques or groups or something like that, but basically we like to be with people like us, don't we? We, we feel more comfortable with folks who are more like we are. Um, and it's not a bad thing. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just stating it as a fact at this point. This is the way it is. Don't you gather with people who are more like you, more in your age range. Um, if you have, uh, if you're a young family, you tend to gather with other young families. Um, our dog, we got a dog so that we could meet people. And this dog now is this bridge for us because now we're dog people. And so our tribe is dog people tribe. I should get a t-shirt, dog people tribe. That'd be cool. But the, this, this bridges a gap. It draws us together. It's something that draws us together um, uh, commonly. And that's what we normally do. That's what we naturally do is we head towards people who are like us. And that's not wrong. It's not bad. It just is the way it is. And, and so it's okay if we do that. But it can be a problem. It can turn into a problem when we neglect the other tribes. I'm going to use the word tribes. I hope that doesn't bother anybody. That's just how I think of this, is, is when our tribe, we, we kind of put up barricades. So there's a great poem by uh, Rudyard Kipling called uh, We and They. And one phrase in it says, all good people agree and all good people say, all nice people like us are we and everyone else is they. So that, that's the problem is when we begin to define our tribe as the right tribe and we start seeing us and them, that's when tribes can become a problem. So it can turn into things like racism or sexism, uh, economic strata isolation. I don't want to hang around with those poorer people. Uh, the generation gap. I just can't speak to these folks. These young people today, these millennials, something like that where, where our tribe now becomes a barricade rather than just who we're comfortable with. So it can do that because we're all human and we're all sinners by nature, broken. And so we can wind up turning our tribes into our complete identity. And I think that's accidentally what the church is drifting to at this point. Is It was probably at this point, since most of the ministry is happening in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, it was probably predominantly Hebrew. It was probably predominantly Aramaic speaking because that was the language in the land at the time. And these Hellenists would have been the folks who came from outlying areas, other parts of the, the um, Roman Empire. Maybe they're the ones that were there on Pentecost morning when the apostles preached to all of these different people in all these different languages. And, and the common language that all those people spoke was Greek, and so they come and that's what they speak. But what they're seeing, what you're seeing is the churches is, is begin to drift into, we're going to take care of the people who are more like us. We just think that way. And, and so that's not necessarily sinful as long as you're mindful of it. We have to be mindful of the other is the warning here. So what happens is they're not mindful of the other. They miss that. They forget that they need to pay attention to the other. And the tribal instinct is what pushed them. Um, there's a book by a lady named Amy Chua. It's called uh, Political Tribes. And it talks about the tribalism in American politics today. But the introduction is really interesting. At the beginning, she kind of introduces her subject. And she says, humans are tribal. We need to belong to groups. We crave bonds and attachments, which is why we love clubs and teams, fraternities, and family. 
But the tribal instinct, instinct is not just an instinct to belong, it's also an instinct to exclude. And so that's why we have to be very careful about taking care of the others. The Hebrew-speaking Christians at this time, unintentionally, I believe, excluded the Greek-speaking. Maybe they only made the announcements in Aramaic or something, but whatever was going on, that's what happened. So we have to be aware of those things that, that has to be addressed. So here's how the church responds to that. This is the issue that's been brought up, and here's what happens. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said was pleasing to the whole gathering. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you the very first congregational business meeting in church history. This is it. And by the way, we're having a congregational business meeting next week, so you could be at whatever number ours is. But this isn't that what happened? The leadership calls all the disciples together, and they said, we have this problem, and this is how we want you to address it. You pick seven people. Here's the criteria for the people you're going to pick. Once you've picked them, we'll verify them, we will set them aside, and that will be their role. That's they're going to be their duty. So what they've done is they've asked the congregation for input, and they've appointed them a certain role. So is this descriptive or prescriptive? I don't have an answer on that one. Um, because remember, the way I figured that out was I said, look at the rest of the New Testament. Um, it's more confused on the rest of the New Testament whether the church always asks the congregation for input or not. So what we're talking about here is a, a concept called church polity. Um, not politics, but polity. It's how does the church organize and structure itself. Um, there are a couple of different versions of it. There's something called hierarchical, which means there's a hierarchy. So what you would have is you'd have a priest or a pastor, and then you'd have a bishop over them, and then a, a cardinal over them. And then in Roman Catholicism, you have a pope over the cardinals, and, and it's a structure. So there's the local congregation and then this other structure above it. The hierarchy makes the decisions and hands it down. That's, that's one way of doing it. Is this an example of hierarchical? It could be, because the apostles would be, in the hierarchical view, would be the hierarchy. They're over all the churches. Is there a church that the apostles don't have authority over? So obviously this is hierarchical. Well, maybe. I think that's a push. Um, another view, is, or another version of church polity is something called uh, Presbyterianism. It comes from the Greek word presbyter, which is used for overseer or elder. And in a Presbyterian system, what you have is each church has a board of elders called a session. And the elders are the ones who rule the church. They run what goes on in the church. And then each one of those sessions comes together in a presbytery. And those presbyteries, they don't have authority necessarily over each other, but they're ordaining each other. They're checking each other's um, theology. They're there to assist. And so the, the elder boards come together, and, and that's kind of the, uh, the upper layer, the upper level. And so is this a, uh, a version of presbyterism or presbyter presbytery? It, it could be. Again, um, it depends on what you mean by, um, by uh, the, uh, the apostles in this setting. The one that we practice is something called congregationalism. And what congregationalism says is the congregation has a role in leadership. Now, it can go all the way from the congregation votes on everything 
Um, folks, we need, we need to buy some, uh, some new coffee mugs because we're out of the plastic coffee mugs. Can we get a vote? How many people are in favor of buying more coffee mugs? That's the extreme form of congregationalism where you all have an input on everything. And that's where we wind up arguing, well, should we get recyclable paper ones or, or are the styrofoam ones okay? And this half the room is all for recycling and this one likes the styrofoam because I don't burn my hand and then we have a fight. That's one version. The way we practice it, I think, was more towards the other end of the scale, which is we have elders who lead, and so the elders are setting the direction, the vision for the church. We're making large macro decisions, but the congregation is part of the leadership team because the elders come to the congregation and they say, would you affirm these men to be elders? Would you affirm these people to be deacons? Would you affirm this church budget? This is going to execute our vision for this year. Will you affirm that? Will you vote on, on and approve that? We want to call this particular person to be our pastor. Will you vote on this man and say yes or no? We, we want to spend a large amount of money to buy property. Would you vote yes or no on that? And that's how the congregation, in a congregational perspective, is involved in the leadership of the church is we don't come to you and announce, here's a budget, fund it. We ask, is this a budget that you think we can sustain? Does this look like the vision for what you want? That's what congregationalism is. And because I'm a congregationalist, that's all I can see here. The apostles said, look, we have a problem in the church. We need to address it. Here's what we're going to do. We'll give you the criteria. These are the, this is the, the fitting bill for the person we're looking for. You go now and pick the seven people and bring the names to us, and then we'll approve them. So the congregation is not divorced from this. They're not like under the authority of the, the, uh, um, the 12 and told this is what's going to happen. The congregation has a voice. They have a, a role. They have a part to play in that. Uh, so that's what I think congregationalism is. I think, the, the, I think we do it the best. Um, then again, I've met Presbyterians who say, well, no, Presbyterianism is the best. And I've met um, Episcopalians who say, oh, no, 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 hierarchical is the best. Um, so I, I can't help it. I'm just biased. I think this is the best way to run a church. And so that's what we do. Um, I hope you agree because <laughs> you are. <laughs> You're doing it even if you don't agree with it necessarily. So the apostles then are, have engaged the congregation and listen to what they said. They said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word. We have a role that we cannot give up. So it's not right that it's not right that the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. That's not right. But the answer to that problem is not we stop preaching the word and instead we start serving tables. So do you get the, the tension there? Is they didn't say it's not right that we give up preaching the word, therefore cancel the daily distribution. That would be the preaching of the word, the preaching and teaching of the word, the ministry of the word is the paramount, most important, only thing that the church should do, and if, and if nothing else can rival it, then they would say, cancel anything else. That's not what they said. What they said is, the ministry of the word is so important, we can't give it up. But the distribution to the widows is so important, we can't cancel it. So what are we going to do? Let's find a common, let's find something between these two so we can do both of them and do both of them well. And so their response is, we're not going to stop preaching to serve tables. Let's get some other people to do that. Let's ask some other folks if they can step up and serve tables. The important thing is, in Protestantism, the ministry of the word is so important, as it should be. Uh, during the Reformation, when they took over churches, 
uh, Roman Catholic churches, what they did was they moved the pulpit more towards the center. They elevated, they made it more central because the ministry of the word in Protestantism is the center point of the worship service. In Roman Catholicism at the time, the center point was the consecration of the gifts. When they would bless the bread and wine and it would turn into the body and blood of Christ, that was the high point of their service. But the Protestants said, no, the ministry of the word is what's crucial. And do you notice what they didn't say here? They didn't say, oh, you guys, we can't stop consecrating bread and wine and turning it into Jesus' body and blood. So pick seven men. It's not even mentioned. What they said is, we can't stop preaching the word. That is central. That's the most important. So I'm going to claim that the, the 12 apostles were Protestants. <laughs> That's called an anachronism. Anachronism means something that's out of location and time. So that great quote from Abraham Lincoln saying, you can't trust everything you read on the internet. Um, that would be an anachronism too. But what Protestantism did is look back and said, what's important? What, what did the church really focus on? What does Jesus want us doing? And what's central is the preaching and the teaching of the word. And that is the role that your elders have. That's, that's our burden is we are called to preach, teach, lead, and pray. That's what we do, and we can't not do that. If you go to a church and they've neglected the preaching of the word, that's not a church, at least not a healthy one. It's got to be central. It's got to be important, and we're getting that from the scriptures. Peter and the apostles are demonstrating to that to us now. We cannot give up the preaching of the word. But, but, pendulums swing in both directions, don't they? So when they're way over here on this side and they swing back, they wind up way over here on that side sometimes. And so some churches can prioritize the ministry of the word so much that they don't worry about anything else. Nothing else matters. Do we have solid preaching and teaching? Anything else can go away. It doesn't matter. All we've got to do is we've got to make sure we have good, solid preaching and teaching. That would be a violation of this, this, this message as well, wouldn't it? Because the apostles said it's not right for us to stop. Start something else to take care of that. That has to be handled in a different way. The whole thing kind of reminded me of uh, Exodus chapter 18. Um, do you remember that story with Jethro, the, the uh, Moses' father-in-law? He comes to visit him in the wilderness. He says, hey, I heard you got out of Egypt. How's it going? And so what he sees is he sees Moses sitting as the judge from morning to evening as all the people are bringing their problems. And he says, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and, and the people stand around you morning till evening? And Moses says, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes of God and his law. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm called to do. Jethro says to him, what you're doing is not good. So Jethro, the priest of Midian, not a Jew, looks Moses in the face and says, you're messing up. You're not doing this right. He says, what you should do is, if you continue doing this, you and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it long. You shall represent the people before God and bring their case to God. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and let them judge. And every matter that's too great for them, they'll bring to you. So that's a similar thing, is Moses is doing that. The 12 apostles right now are the ruling. They are the, the whole structure of the church. They are the leadership. They're doing it all. And instead of having to have Jethro come and tell them, they recognize something's got to give here. And so it's, it's a similar situation. I just found it really amazing that those things parallel like that.
So the problem is that we can't do it all. Don't look, if I can translate all of that into contemporary English for our situation, don't look to the church staff to do all the work here. Don't look at the elders and the deacons and the staff and say, well, they'll do it. It's too heavy a burden for us. We can't do it. We shouldn't do it. You don't want your, your pastors and your elders to give up the preaching and teaching of the word to clean the men's room. You don't want your, your deacons to give up mercy ministries in order to keep um, uh, food going or something. You know, there's just so many things that we all need to do together. And, and what did it say at the beginning? They summon the full number of the disciples. We all are coming together to make this church work. And it's important that the elders provide leadership, provide biblical insights, teach, preach, disciple, pray. It's important that the deacons perform um, deeds of mercy for the church. And it's important that you be involved too. So what it is, is it's our job to equip you for the ministry. That's what the apostles were doing. They said, call seven men, and they'll continue to do that. You need to be involved in the ministry. You need to call these men. You need to work with them. So they are the ones who call them into ministry. They summon the full number, and they put them to work. That's what happened. So uh, this is how we look at it in, in, um, in our Constitution. We said that the congregation is the final authority for the local church, and they shall be, uh, I'm sorry, the the final authority of, for this local church shall be the vested in the voting members who operate as one body under their leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. One body. That's how we do it, as we come together as one body. And in one body, does the entire body wait for the finger to do everything? The finger does the talking, it does the eating, it does the walking, it does everything. No way. That's a metaphor that Paul uses, isn't it? The body is made up of all these different parts, and there's a foot being foot-like. And there's an eye being eye-like, and there's a hand being hand-like, and all of them coming together make the thing work under the authority of the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what's important is we have to have all of these things working together. It's our job to equip you for ministry. So I think it was my candidating sermon I preached was from Ephesians chapter 4. So this is how I view my ministry. And in Ephesians 4, it's, uh, it quotes a psalm and says that Jesus led a captive host and gives gifts to men. And at the time, I said, he, they got it wrong. Paul wrote it down wrong. He made a mistake because it doesn't say gives gifts to men in the psalm. It says receives gifts. So what's going on? And my response was, well, Paul's interpreting that psalm as it applies to Christ. Is Paul receives, it says Jesus receives the gifts. Yes, he does. That's that, co that captive host that he leads. And he gives gifts. In other words, the people who come in through the harvest, those who Jesus is leading to himself, are given gifts. And the very next thing Paul says is he talks about some are pastors and some are elders and some are teachers and preachers. And those are the gifts that he gives to the church. And the very next thing he says in verse 12 is, for the equipping of the church for the work of the ministry. So the reason that God gives us all of these different types of people with all these different kind of gifts is so that the congregation is equipped for the work of ministry. Now, some people put a comma in there. For the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry. And what they mean there is, this is what the leadership does, is they equip the saints and they work the ministry. Um, I don't take it that way. Looking at the Greek, I don't think it makes sense to do it that way. I see why they say that, but 
I think what it really, the best way to interpret it is, your leadership in this church is here to equip you, the saints, so that you may do the work of the ministry. And that's what's going on here with, with uh, the apostles and with these seven men, is they've been called to do this work. Um, it, it's important that they do that. So then, what happens? They chose Stephen, a man of, uh, full of spirit and uh, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicor, Timon, and Parmenes, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte. And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. One of the things everybody notices about this is every single name in that list is Greek. And so the, the assumption is, well, there must all be Greek speakers. So if that's true, it doesn't say, does it? It just lists the names. And most of the list we never hear of again. But let's assume for one moment that because they're all Greek names, they're all Greek speakers. Look at what the church did. They said, we have a problem. The minority, the Greek speakers, are being neglected. We need to put some people in charge to rule over this thing, to make sure this thing works fairly and equitably. So let's take a mixture. We'll take three Greek speakers and the rest will be Hebrew speakers and we'll put them together in a committee and they'll look over it. They didn't do that. They said, we're going to take all of these Greeks and put them in charge. They will ensure parity. They will ensure that the distribution is fair because they are the weakest. They're the most vulnerable. They're the ones who raised the complaint. They're going to be the ones that are watching over that. There is a thing called the tyranny of the majority. And, and the tyranny of the majority says, well, there's this unjust thing happening to this minority group. Well, let's vote on it. Guess who's going to lose? <laughs> they are, by definition, a minority group. So if they had put this to a vote for the church and said, what do you think, y'all? Are we neglecting the Greeks? Hey, you know, vote came back 60-40. We must not be neglecting the Greeks. That's called the tyranny of the majority. And it's something to be avoided. Now, that's why, if I can go slightly political for a second, I think that's why we have the, the, um, the Electoral College, is so that all the states are equally represented, so you don't get the tyranny of the majority, where the majority then can stomp all over the minority. That's what happened in the church here, is they grabbed Greeks, or at least Greek-sounding people, and drew them into that leadership position and said, all right, you minority, you are now in charge. That is a beautiful picture of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, who had all this authority, all this honor, all this glory, divested himself of all of that and came as a servant. And the church looks and says, wow, you guys, accidentally or on purpose, whatever it is, we've been neglecting the Greek-speaking widows. We're going to put the Greeks in charge to make sure this doesn't happen again. We're going to give up our power, our authority, and we're going to let them rule because we want to be fair. We want to be equitable to people. And so that's what, that's what they are. So... Um, who do we have here? Well, first of all, Stephen. We'll hear a whole bunch about Stephen coming up. He's the star of the next episode. Um, the other person is Philip. And Philip really is a problem with that whole Greek-speaking thing because there's an apostle named Philip. And Philip was from Bethsaida with Andrew and, um, and uh, Nathaniel and, and some of the other ones that's in the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. That probably was not a predominantly Greek-speaking area. It probably was predominantly Hebrew. So someone named Philip might not necessarily be a Greek speaker. We got at least one example. Um, I don't know. Again, it's, it, Luke frustratingly doesn't give us enough data on that. 
But then there's another person who we're almost positive was a Greek speaker, Nicholas, the last person in the list. Nicholas is a proselyte of Antioch. Now, there are two Antiochs in this time. There's Antioch Pisidia, which is up in modern-day Turkey, and then there's Antioch Syria uh, in, in Syria, and we don't know which one it is because it just says Antioch. The important word there is proselyte. Proselyte is a unique biblical term in Greek, and it came from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was used to translate the word sojourner, and it doesn't exist before Exodus chapter 18 when it was first introduced. Nowhere else in classical literature is that word there. And if they were just talking about a, a convert, there's a Greek word for that. So for some reason, the Hebrews thought that they needed a special word to describe what type of person this was, and they came up with the word proselyte. And what it means is crossed over and joined. That's kind of the idea behind that word. Picked up and used in the New Testament, and then it's almost exclusively a Christian word after that. So this man is a proselyte of Antioch. What that means is he was a Jew, or I mean he was a Greek, born in a Greek culture from Greek parents, and he converted at some time in his life to Judaism. So at least one person in this list, we can say absolutely with near certainty, he probably spoke Greek. And that's it. So does that throw that whole theory about putting the, the minority in charge out the window? I don't know. <laughs> There's not enough information. Luke could have given us more information here, um, but he didn't. But what's important is we now have these two roles. The, the apostles are dedicating themselves to prayer and ministry of the word, and these seven are dedicating themselves to ministry of mercy. One of the big controversies and in, in commentaries on this is, are these men deacons? And I look at that and go, why would you say they aren't? <laughs> I, I don't understand what the, the controversy is. This looks exactly like what would turn into the diaconate, the, the deacons. It, it's, it's everything that they should be doing. There's qualifications for the office. There's a call. There's a laying out of hands. They're put in. They're, they serve. So I don't understand the controversy. I'm, I'm with the folks who say, yeah, this is, this is the first deacons. This is what would turn into a, a, a diaconate movement. So what the, the elders do is, like I said, ministry of the word prayer. What do the deacons do? That's an important question because this fall we're going to start doing some training for different ministries. And one of them is going to be we're going to train our deacons and say, this is our vision for the deacons. Now, Dan and I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk about this, so this may all change. <laughs> but the way I'm reading this is the role of the deacons within the body of Christ is the ministry of mercy. So with these widows in need, the deacons step forward and the deacons take care of the widows. They bring them food. They distribute the food to them daily. And then when we look at some other things that deacons do, deacons will take care of other needs of the body. That's the primary ministry is the deacons are a ministry of mercy. Um, and so that's what we want to have our, our deacons begin to grow into is to take care of things like food ministry. They don't have to deliver the food themselves, but they can coordinate that. To be watching for people in need within our body and say, how can we go help them? To provide um, um, uh, mercy ministries like that. So that's where we're heading with all of this is into that area. So how does this, what's the result of all this? All right, so here's where we're at. We've got tribes. We've got a tribal problem within the, the body of Christ. Um, Hebrews and, um, and Greek speakers are at, at odds with each other. The, the church has now stepped in and put the Greeks in charge. And what's the result of this? Well, they continue to preach the word. They continue to focus on what Christ has called them to, which is both 
the ministry of the word and ministry of mercy. And then verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. The word of God continued to increase. Not the number of disciples. The word of God continued. Does that mean that they wrote more word of God? Does it mean it wrote it in big letters? What it means is the ministry, the effect, the function of the word of God continued to increase because the apostles dedicated to themselves to that. That's what got them in trouble in the temple because they would go in and they would preach Jesus Christ. They would preach the ministry of the word. So the, the effect is the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That cost them their job. If a priest becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, they may not realize it at this point. This is probably still very fuzzy theology. They're still working through what it means. Once Hebrews is written, we can look back and go, you know what? Jesus fulfilled all that. We don't need to offer any more sacrifices. There's, there's no need to, to slaughter a goat again. Jesus' blood took it away for all. So these priests who become obedient to the faith now have nothing to offer. They have no sacrifice to offer because Jesus did it all. Their great high priest took it all away from them. He did it perfectly. He did it once and he sat down, is how Hebrews presents it. But this is the effect, is, is there's this change rippling out. There's, there's this difference that's happening. And one of the things that I think is really important that we can see from this as we gather all of this together and try to figure out what's going on is, first of all, we're tribal. We just are. We speak different languages, we have different cultural backgrounds, we have different economic strata, we have different ages, all of that. We just happen to be tribal. And, and that's okay. That started at the Tower of Babel, where everybody was one big tribe and they were disobedient one big tribe. And so God said, split them up. I told you to go to the ends of the earth and you're gonna stop and build a tower. Split them up. So that was the beginning of the problem. What we see here in Christ, though, is the beginning of the resolution of that problem. Yes, we are all tribal, but in Christ, we come into a new tribe and we have a new identity. And we still come with our baggage. We come with who we are into that group. So I'm a science fiction nerd. I will always be a science fiction nerd. If you bump into me, I will talk to you about Star Trek or complain about Star Wars or Whatever. That's just who I am. I bring that with me. I don't stop doing that. I stop doing any sinful things that attach to it, but it's just who I am. And so I tend to hang around with other science fiction nerds. And that's okay, as long as it doesn't turn into a clique and we hold everybody else out. We, we exclude other people. All we talk about is, is Star Trek and nobody else knows what we're talking about. That, that's not cool. Because the church is doing something amazing, it's not saying put all of those cultural backgrounds away. What it's saying is bring them all together. And so the, the ministry of the word is what God uses to bring people from all of these diverse backgrounds together into a new tribe called the church. And they bring those things with them. So how do we bridge those gaps? How do we smooth over those lumpy parts where some of these, these tribal backgrounds don't fit together particularly well? That's the mercy uh, the ministry of mercy that takes place, that's what does that. And that's what you see happening with the diaconate stepping forward and serving the minority, serving those Greek-speaking widows, is they don't tell them, well, we're going to have a, a crash course on how to speak Hebrew now. Instead, they say, we're going to serve 
both Hebrews and Greeks. And we're not going to wipe out those distinctions, but we're not going to let those distinctions hold us apart anymore. So the ministry of the word gathers the disciples, draws them in. The mercy ministries makes them into a body of Christ, helps them learn to serve and to love and care for each other. And what's the net result of that? Colossians 3.11, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all, or Christ is all and in, and in all. Here there is no, those distinctions are gone. Though so-and-so is Scythian, he just is. This man came from barbarism, he did, but the distinctions are gone. And so look at the end result in Revelation 7. John has another vision. He says, And I looked, and behold, a great multitude no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And, and, and John turned around and he recognized that person's Greek. That's a Hebrew. He's from Gaul. This one's from Asia. Look, there's someone from India. He recognized that there were all of these nations and tribes and peoples and languages. They were still discernible. But they all stand before the throne. They all wear white robes. They all hold palm branches, and they all yell the same praises. So that's the function that we're looking at. This is what the church should be doing when the church is functioning at her best. It's through the ministry of the word we call people into a new reality, into a new tribe, this tribe called the church. And through mercy ministries, we maintain our distinction, our uniqueness, and yet smooth over the rough places and draw us together. That's the function of the church at her best when she's functioning extremely well. This is going to be really important because the rest of the book of Acts is going to face this problem over and over and over again, isn't it? Stephen is going to be executed. Uh, Philip is going to wind up preaching to an Ethiopian. Peter is going to wind up preaching to a, a Roman centurion. These are Gentiles. What do we do with them? And then the worst news of all, Paul goes out to the nations and preaches to the Gentiles. And now what do we do? Isn't that exactly what's happening here in microcosm? We've got Greeks and we've got Hebrews. How do we fit them together? How do we make them mesh together? Now here we don't have that problem. We're largely the same people group, but we still have differences in uniqueness. And so what I want you to consider, what I want you to think about when you, when you consider things like a congregational business meeting, when you think about things like the deacons or the elders, is what we're looking at is building this new reality, building this new identity we have in Jesus Christ and coming together not to wipe out our differences, but to celebrate them and to enjoy them in Jesus Christ as a renewed people. So some people like to preach uh, Acts chapter 2 as the undoing of the Tower of Babel because all these languages come together. I was really surprised to find the undoing of the Tower of Babel in chapter 6. That's where that is beginning. Jesus is beginning to pull that stuff back together. He would primarily focused on the Jews. Now he's going to the nations, and the nations are going to come in and the nations are going to come in, and they're all going to be lumped together, and it's going to be messy, and we're going to get elbows, and people are going to stand on your foot and sit in your seat and, and serve you food you don't like or you can't eat, and it's all okay because we have a new reality in Christ. There is neither 
Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, skidding, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. That's the good news. And that's what the polity of your church, at her best, when she's functioning well, should be doing. Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us a healthy church? Um, Lord, where we're weak, I pray that you would give us strength. Where we are missing gifts, Lord, would you bring people into the church who have those gifts? Or equip people who are already in the church with that gift and have them step forward and help. Lord, uh, I pray that we would adopt this view of the ministry of the church, where there's not the apostles doing the important stuff and, oh yeah, everybody else. But Lord, all of it comes together in this glorious picture of Christ's body working together. So Lord, call each and every one of us. Lead us to do whatever it is that we can to serve the body of Christ to love so that the ministry of the word can go forward, so that mercy ministries can take place, so that your body will be knit together. Lord, thank you for, uh, for giving us this vision before we launch into some of the more challenging things, the first martyr and, and, um, and uh, persecution and, and all of those things. Lord, it's important we get this so that we can hold on to this hope, this truth, this beautiful image that you have of your church as she splinters and goes out into the world. Um, Lord, would you cause us to adopt that same attitude towards all of our, uh, all the churches that we know, that are like-minded, that we can work with, that we're all pulling in the same direction. And Lord, we pray a blessing on them and on us, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.